0: You have to have, as they say, butt in the seat time. You have to actually sit down and write. You know, start planning out that. How many hours, how many days are you going to assign to your writing uh, task? And then track yourself. You know, what is measured is what gets done. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and
1: interviews for all kinds of writers. What should you know about writing speculative fiction? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. I'm a big science fiction reader. I'm currently reading the book, Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And one of my favorite recent science fiction books is The Three-Body Problem, which I read during the pandemic. I also like to watch a lot of science fiction on television and on Netflix. I guess I'm a little bit nerdy. don't really have a huge interest in writing science fiction, though, because it's the type of genre that I like to read late at night when I want to switch off. And I find that the best science fiction books, or the best speculative fiction books, always have a big idea behind them. They have some topic that they want to tackle, or perhaps there's a bit of philosophy underpinning the actual book, Or maybe they delve into science like AI and also biotech and explain how these things may change our world for the better or for the worse. I still love hearing from and learning from speculative science fiction authors because it's great to hear how they approach big ideas and turn them into a piece of work or a good story or a novel that readers can enjoy. That's what this week's guest has done. His name is Gary Benger and he is the author of the award-winning speculative fiction or cross-fiction book Unfettered Journey. I was fascinated to catch up with Gary because he actually had another career before he became a science fiction author. He was CFO for eBay back in the late 1990s and eBay went public. So it's really interesting to talk to somebody who had a corporate career, but actually secretly wanted to become a writer and an author. And after he left eBay and later retired, he pursued that dream and he used many of his learnings to underpin his new book. My key takeaway from listening to Gary is the importance of measuring your output as a writer. Perhaps this is a learning from the corporate world, but basically if you're, you know if you have a day job, you're, you know your health account with your goals, your responsibilities and what you do and what you need to accomplish by a given week or a given month. There's not really much different for writers and authors. except we need to ship words, we need to hit a word count and we need to ship drafts over to our editors by set date. And we also need to meet publication deadlines. And Gary gives some practical tips for getting your butt in the chair and doing just that. So I hope you enjoyed this week's interview with Gary. If you do, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store, because your reviews and ratings help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And you could, of course, share the show with another writer or another friend who enjoys speculative fiction or perhaps wants to tackle this genre themselves. And if you have feedback about this week's episode, I'm also on Twitter at Brian J. Collins. Welcome to the show, Gary. Brian, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you this afternoon. So it's afternoon time in Dublin, and I understand you're on the West Coast, so it's early morning for you. I was fascinated to read about your career because it's not often you meet somebody who's in the corporate world and then decided, I'm going to become a genre fiction author. Could you give listeners a bit of background information about who you are? Yeah,
0: sure, sure. I spent over 30 years in most basically working in Silicon Valley in a whole variety of uh, technologies, everything from bioscience to uh, chip design, computer peripherals, video over the internet, the technology behind what we're using right now, and then the internet itself. I was chief financial officer at eBay, took them public back in 1998 and was there through some of the crazy years when the company was growing like hairs on fire. And so I hung around till we were several thousand employees and billions of dollars worth of stuff being sold. And, and then I retired and went on to other things, including writing this book.
1: eBay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, went public back in 1998 or 1999.
0: Yeah, 1998. And yeah, had, still is doing a great run around the world. So helping lots of average folks make a living on the platform
1: yeah certainly so so i can imagine it's probably difficult to find time to write back then but did you always want to become a genre fiction author
0: well, I wouldn't describe myself as a genre fiction author at all, but I've had this interest in exploring certain kinds of ideas, philosophical ideas, for over 30 years. Ideas like, what is free will? Do we have it or not? And so after I, after I retired from tech career, I went back to school. I backfilled a, an astrophysics degree, and then I got interested in some philosophy, and I backfilled a philosophy undergraduate degree. And then went on to get a master's in philosophy, focusing on theory of mind, focusing on ideas like what is human consciousness? And those ideas is actually what drove me to want to write this book, to kind of share it with a broader audience.
1: All good science fiction certainly has big questions like that at the heart of it. And had you written much up until you went back to university or college?
0: In a business career, you learned to write all the time. So, and, and that's for a purpose. It's a, a particular kind of writing. But I took some creative writing classes over the years. And so I've always been interested in writing, but this was different. I had to go back and actually learn the whole craft from the, the ground up. So for example, I bought a hundred books on craft writing and I attended, oh, about eight different writers' conferences in the early days just to get a a feel for what was going on, what were people thinking. And I would actually recommend both of those steps to all aspiring writers. You have to learn your craft. There's a lot of very good advice books out there, and I think it's really important to get out and actually meet other writers and learning both about the craft and about the marketplace, because those are two very different topics.
1: Any particular books about the craft that you picked up or read over the years that's made a big impact on you?
0: I said there was about a hundred of them. So you know the process was read uh, three books on plot, and then you know you're working on your outline, you're working on your book, and you're incorporating the ideas. Read uh, several books on character. Read the first book. Read a book about dialogue, and then after if you're immersed in that, read a few more. And suspense, you know, tension, dynamic tension, character art. there are so many. And since I'm writing this particular book, villains. How do you write villains? There are so many different aspects of the craft, and there's a lot of good advice out there. So, So, yeah, just I would say go out and look for the reviews on books that for each of those kinds of topics. But there's probably another 10 more that I didn't name.
1: Uh, You sound like somebody who doesn't buy into the stereotype that people are either focused on numbers and or focused on the written words that there's no real in between.
0: No, I don't think that there's one or the other. I mean, our minds are very plastic. They do lots of things very well. And so in terms of the writing craft, I do think that there is a an illusion about whether you write in an organized way, the planners, as they talk about, or the pantsers, those that write by the seat of their pants. They're sort of waiting for the muse to strike them. And I think that the muse is not going to strike you unless you have some good ideas. You're going to write yourself down a cul-de-sac and be stuck. Your plot is not going to be very organized. What I strive to do is to be one of those writers. You know the writer that when you get into a book, you have the feeling that the writer is holding you in in their hands and that you're going someplace, that you have confidence that the writer is taking you in a certain direction. And I think to do that, you really have to know where you're going as a writer. So I'm a big fan of the idea of writing a really long outline and thinking about where you're going and then to be methodical about that. And within that kind of structure, the muse will strike you because the creative process is not going to be bound up by that kind of process. You've got plenty of room to be creative. So that's my advice about process. As I said, I'm a big fan of Scrivener as a tool, by the way, because one needn't worry about formatting and all that sort of nonsense for a long time. But it helps you have a visual look at the whole piece of art all at one time. You can look at the structure, you can move around pieces of the structure and think about how they fit. And then as you start writing, you will find, at least I find, that there's far less of an issue with writer's block because you kind of know where you're going. Hemingway said, leave a little bit at the bottom of the well for the next day. You know, So you pick up the pen the next day you know exactly where you left off and then you can get going
1: yeah i think he famously used to stop in the middle of a sentence <laughs> Yeah. so that when he, when he would start the following day he'd pick up from where he left off and yeah i agree scrivener is great it has a little bit of a learning curve that can put off some authors but for particularly for outlining and organizing sections in a big book it's excellent because you can drag and drop chapters and even entire acts so when you came up with the idea for unfettered journey or even to take a step backwards the the concepts that underpin Unfettered Journey, did you ever consider writing them as nonfiction or did you also feel like fiction was the best way to express them?
0: No, I thought uh, fiction was the best way from the beginning. Well, so from my philosophical journey, thinking about consciousness, you know, what is the mind, right? What is that I that's the center of each of us? And those ideas were sort of something that I wanted to explore. And actually, I wrote a little philosophical book, which is actually called Unfettered Journey Appendices, Philosophical Explorations on Time, Ontology, and the Nature of Mind. And that's uh, focused on the professional philosophers and So this novel was actually an attempt to bring some of those ideas to a more general audience. So that was sort of first, this was second. And Unfettered Journey then, I set it in the near future, which is in the year 2161, 140 years in the future. It's a hard science view of the future. And what I did that for is because then the setting, much less likely to go get old (laughs) and be outdated. And it let me explore many of these ideas um, um, in more detail. So, uh, So, that's the reason why it's speculative fiction. But I think you mentioned this is cross-genre. You know, it's an adventure and love story just happens to be set in the near future.
1: I understand the book covers themes like, will AI cause the most changes to our lives in the future? Um, what happens when robots produce everything? And how can we find meaning and purpose if, if this type of reality comes true?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a hard science view, and it's informed by the fact that uh, I had the fortune to participate in, in so many of these really important technologies that are driving you know, the way life is today. And as I think about how those come together, quite honestly, I think that speculative fiction, science fiction, many writers don't do that very well because they aren't as familiar with very many technologies. And so, so much of science fiction gets it wrong. You know, we we have... Uh, imagine if you wrote a, a science fiction book, you know, before 2007 when the iPhone came out, that, Well, your story is probably not very realistic, even today,
1: right? Unless it's uh, Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, right. The 1960s show kind of previewed the iPhone.
0: <laughs> yeah, but but then you have Star Trek, and so you have, you know, faster than light spaceships. Well, that's not going to happen. It's well known that Einstein's theory of relativity is well established, so we're not going to be able to do that. So, we have an odd idea about the future driven by, you know, the Terminator, right? The robots going to kill us. Or, so, you know, we're going to upload our brains. Uh, lots of silly nonsense that it just isn't going to happen. So, I was looking at the future and thinking, what's highly likely? And with that as a frame, actually there are enough interesting issues that I think we realistically as human beings will face. And so with that as a backdrop, I think for this particular future for humans, this next century is going to be driven by two kinds of technology. One is bioscience which is gonna you know, change an enormous amount of things. Uh, we're gonna live longer. We're not gonna live forever, I don't think. We're going to cure lots of diseases. We're gonna be healthier later in life. But the second technology is actually the one we will notice more, and that will be the impact of AI and robotics because I think you can look at what's happening in in robots already. If anyone's seen the dancing robots in the Boston Dynamics videos on YouTube, it's obvious that this is going to continue. We're now following the war in Ukraine, and look what drones are doing. We can imagine that the military will spend lots of money to make robots more and more practical for the battlefield. So I think it's highly likely, if not inevitable, that in this century, and century and a half, we will have robots walking around among us. And so that's a reality. And and so what is the world going to be like when we've got lots of robots and then fewer jobs, right?
1: Speaking of uh, robots replacing jobs, do you worry that robots will replace (laughs) authors?
0: Well, they already are trying. Have you seen the AIs that write uh, books now, right?
1: I've tried some of the AI software for short articles. It's okay. It's not uh, going to win any awards. Uh, It's helpful for writing like a headline or... Something very simple, but you, you you couldn't write an entire novel with it just yet.
0: Yeah, exactly, I, and and that's a good question. Will it ever happen? You know, and that gets to one of the themes in my book. Will AI and, and robots actually ever be? conscious right will they ever be sentience being having true feeling consciousness will they be like us in that way and you know many of the philosophers of mine have some serious doubt there's something called the hard problem of consciousness and we're not even anywhere close to understanding consciousness so that's a deep and difficult problem and so one of the things i pose in my book is will robots ever be conscious
1: i mean those are all big ideas gary so when you were outlining uh, on her Journey, you described you like to write really detailed outlines. Yes. Could you walk us through that process and how long that, that normally takes you and what it involves?
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I like. Uh, Scrivener. I happen to be a person that, that I'm visual, and so seeing it on the page is helpful. Seeing then the story and outline in a way that you can actually look at the whole piece is is important. And Scrivener helps you do that. And then you know, thinking the next level down to what are the main themes you're trying to to bring about. Thinking about your characters and where do they appear, and then outlining each of your characters and thinking about uh, what they're doing, how do you interact with them, and then really. Really importantly you're down to the scene level what scenes do you do you plan to have in your work and thinking about scenes then what are you trying to accomplish with each and every scene Because if the scene does not have a really important purpose, then leave it out, okay? So I actually found that each scene had three or four different goals in mind. And in an outline, I would write those kind of goals. You know, I I want to advance this part of the character's emotional journey, right? This is gonna advance the character arc. This one's going to demonstrate how these two characters are foils for each other, et cetera. There are lots and lots of goals you have for each scene. And this is gonna cause this particular kind of conflict this is going to foreshadow something else that happens later in the book. And when you start doing it that way, you realize what an intricate puzzle it is to write good fiction. And that's what makes it fun, actually. And then once you start doing that, got a really strong outline. It does a couple of things. It lets you sit down and actually be able to write methodically. Then the characters start waking up in the middle of the night and whispering in your ear, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And they start talking to you. And so there is this tremendous amount of creativity that comes out at that point. So I did not find that the process of trying to outline and be planful about the scenes in any way impacted negatively the creative process.
1: Did it take you long to get from that detailed outline to a a polished first draft or a draft that you could send to an editor?
0: Well, it did. And then I think another step that I would highly recommend to writers is that you have to have as they say, butt in the seat time. You have to actually sit down and write. You know start planning out that how many hours how many days are you going to assign to your writing uh, task and then track yourself you know what is measured is what gets done and in that process then i found well okay you know life intervenes so i didn't write as much as i wanted i'd hoped to get something done this month but a little of that got done so when you do that process then you start to see the number of words you've written on the page increase and you start to measure that and that process i think was tremendously helpful too so that intense process took a year and a half for this kind of book.
1: And um, were you writing at a set time and for a set amount each day?
0: No. What I essentially did is that I outlined my calendar against when I was going to write. So I planned a few weeks ahead. And then sometimes that happened and sometimes it didn't. But just that kind of structure really did help push along the word count and the number of scenes that were finished. And yeah, so you need at least that minimum kind of structure.
1: Mm, makes sense so you spent a year and a half on the outlining and first draft from what you're saying
0: right intensely yes and then over a year from that point on the editing i found a dozen beta readers you know various friends and ha- and i actually printed up what looked sort of looked like real books and gave them to them, and they marked them all up for me. And then when those came back, I had sort of draft one and a half. And then I went... Oh, did, you, did you
1: use a bespoke service, or did you use Amazon to do proof copies, or how did you...
0: No, I just did a fairly inexpensive knockoff, you know, give me a half dozen um, bound copies kind of service. Okay. You know, those are very inexpensive.
1: And I'm just curious, because when you write uh, science fiction... It's fair to say that not everybody will love reading science fiction. I mean, I, I love it, but some of my friends, if I gave them a science fiction book, they, they, they wouldn't know what to do with it. So did you go out and purposely pick people in your social circle who you knew enjoyed the genre?
0: Uh no, I just picked friends that I thought would, would be willing to invest the time because that's a big yeah. time commitment
1: to actually have someone read it. Yeah. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a, to read a book that big it is. Yeah. And how did you handle getting feedback you didn't agree with or cl- conflicting feedback? Because what I found when I use beta readers is some people will say things that's well-meaning or well-intentioned, but it's not actually anything you can do anything with. And then if you compare their feedback to someone else, one person says, I love this bit. The other person says, I hate this bit. And you're left wondering, what do I do? <laughs> well,
0: well, as the author, you're in charge of your work, ultimately. So, you know, you thank everyone for all their time and all their helpful advice, but you don't necessarily take it all, right? So you're trying to synthesize all that. And then that's just the first step. I mean, at that point, then, I engaged using some professional editors and quite a number of them, actually. I mean, the good news and the bad news in the industry today is that the number of major publishers is diminishing. They keep on buying each other. It's it's actually a very bad business.
1: It's a big case in the United States at the moment, an antitrust case.
0: Exactly, yes. We have, you know, one wants to buy another one, so we get down to the big four from the big five. And again, it's a bad business. And from a business perspective, what they've tried to do is do acquisitions, acquire the next guy, fire half the editors, make the other half that are left work twice as hard. So, And what that does mean for the writer is that if you want to take the traditional route, you know, which is spend the time to find an agent, which could take you a year, and then spend the time to have the agent try to rustle up a major book deal for you, which could easily take another year if it's successful at all. So rather than take that time, and then if you do that, unfortunately the problem is is that the editorial support you have through a major publisher is far less than what you used to have 20, 30 years ago. But you can actually buy those editors sort of off the street. There's an enormous number of uh, freelance editors that are available and fabulous people.
1: Yeah, I've used Readsy. It's quite good. You can find editors who've worked for some of the big five or now big four publishing companies and work with them for one or two or $3,000, depending on the length of your manuscript. But I'm curious, just go back to something you said there. You, you worked with several editors. So, so most authors might work with one editor and then a proofreader. What made you enlist the help of several editors?
0: What did is that I found that I loved the process and I found it kept on getting better. I mean, as an example, at one point, I had three editors and myself in a Google Doc going through the manuscript, essentially a line at a time. Now, I mean, we had a good time. It was tremendously fun because, you know, the author, it's your work <laughs> and and you're spending time talking about it. And if at least if you are open to taking advice, then you can have a little back and forth tea on that work. And it kept on getting better.
1: A lot of authors would find that stressful to have a couple of different editors giving feedback at the same time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I found it
1: tremendously fun. Oh, wow. And so how long did the editing process take when you had feedback from that many people? Uh, let's see. It took almost a year. Okay. Wow. Wow. So how many revisions did the book go through?
0: I personally went through, and this is a long book. You know, this is 140,000 words. I went through it 20 times oh, Wow. in detail, at least
1: but it worked. I mean the book has the book has several awards and it's some great five star reviews.
0: Well, it's um now the book's won ten different book awards and it's now out in eight languages, so
1: did you arrange for translations yourself, or did you know translators in those different languages?
0: I did arrange for them myself, and I had found some friends and academics that could direct me to some other folks that they thought were really outstanding translators. So. Okay.
1: Um, and what made you pick the, the countries or geographies that you picked for those translations?
0: I just looked at the m- most important languages for, for uh, literature in the world. <laughs> you, know, you start at the top, you know, with, with the eight languages. I didn't get Chinese. It was too difficult to find a literary Chinese translator. And quite honestly, my book would probably be banned in China anyway. So I wasn't sure that it would ever get in the country. But I think that those languages cover more, far more than half of all of the literate languages where you find the vast majority of books written. So,
1: so you have German, Spanish, Italian,
0: French... Japanese, Brazilian, Portuguese, Russian. Oh, br- I even have a British English edition. Oh, do you? Like, yes. Nice. <laughs>
1: I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Most people just cross-publish and put a disclaimer on <laughs> the book. Uh, di- and di- did you get different covers for different countries? No, I found a, through actually
0: through the editors, and you, know, you sort of get enmeshed into that world. And so there's lots of people that know each other. And so through that, I was able to find both a wonderful book cover designer that happened to be in Copenhagen, And I found a layout design that happened to be in uh, Switzerland. And I like to keep sort of a standard iconic look to the cover. So only the title changes.
1: Hmm, Interesting. So the book has been out for a while and it has 2020. So during the pandemic, are you busy working on a follow-up?
0: No. One of the things I will suggest to writers is this is a lot of work, and the industry is a really difficult industry. The figures I've found are roughly, there are something on the order of 4,000 books that come out every day. So with that enormous flood of books, I think that writers should write what you are passionate about or write what you know. We don't need another genre book that's like all the others, at least in my opinion, because the world is flooded with those. And so you can spend an enormous amount of time and, you know, that will disappear into that whole wave of other books that are coming out. So how do you make yourself different? How do you write a good book, a great book? I think you have to write about what you're passionate about. So I have this one really I think, big idea that has to do with consciousness, with free will, ask some important questions. I do that in, in the context of the future to ask, how does one find meaning and purpose in this technological world? So that's why I wrote this book.
1: Okay, great. Are you writing anything else, like a different type of book or a different topic?
0: Uh, Well, I'm still quite busy with the marketing. There is writing and then there is uh, marketing. In fact, one of my favorite writers' conferences in the U.S. is one that was in Boston called The Muse and the Marketplace, which deals with those two aspects. And I will caution aspiring writers that it's an enormous amount of work to think about the marketplace, whether you find a traditional publisher or not you're still going to have to do so many of the same steps. You're going to have to build a writer platform. You're going to have to figure out how to market it yourself. You're going to have to be out there in front of folks. And now these days you need to be facile with a whole lot of tools. You're going to need a a website, whether you get someone else to help you do it or you are involved yourself. You're constantly doing something on the book. It's a huge uh, learning curve to do all that stuff. Mm. So for all writers, don't think that just because you've finished the book, you're done. Otherwise, you know, if you just think the publisher is going to take it, forget about it. It's going to disappear down a black hole and end up in, you know, number two million on Amazon. Good advice.
1: Gary, where can people go if they want to read your book or learn more about you?
0: Yeah, so they can go to my website, Gary GaryFBenger, B E N G I E R, dot com. And I also have the websites in a dozen countries, whether it's uh, the UK with co.uk or uh, Germany, Italy, France, um, Japan, Portugal, etc. And you can find the book on Amazon and in bookstores, wherever you buy books, because it's uh, on Amazon, it's through Ingram Spark around the
1: world. So, unfettered journey. Thanks, Gary. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you did please consider leaving a short review on the itunes store or sharing the show on spotify stitcher or wherever you're listening